0: Reality minded. Since the early 1960s, with roots in varying artistic and social movements, from Dada and Futurism to interchangeable forms of abstract expressionism, performance art has reimagined the relationship between artist and audience. Unlike theater, Where this relation and the conveyance of emotion are based in fantasy, performance art challenges reality and its employment within fine art. It is a conceptual and multifarious expression that adheres to no particular standard or set of rules. Therefore, it rejects any definition of itself. It is without boundaries and can occur in any setting at any time. It can be scripted or unscripted, live or recorded. It can be as brief as a second or go on for days. It is truth, boiled down, unfiltered and served in its rawest form. No postmodern conceptualist has embraced this free-form anti-ideology, as it was famously coined by art historian Gary Rosenblatt, although heavily debated, more than the anonymous performance street artist known throughout popular culture as Crispin. A master of disguise and human existence, Crispin is considered the godfather of contemporary performance art, with over 2,000 works, or transferences, to his credit. Crispin doesn't just perform, he becomes, says abstract art critic Sophie Fay. He transforms into not an idea, but a reality, and pushes the limits of audience participation, all of whom are unbeknownst to the piece, making it a living, breathing entity. They believe Crispin's identities because he believes the identities, and therefore the identities are. This is the essence of his art. With an active career spanning 50 plus years, the suspected Italy-born artist is believed to have gotten his start in the resorts and playhouses of the Catskill Mountains in the mid-60s. As an actor, the life of the role enamored Crispin, but over time he became disenchanted by the stage's veil of make-believe. When not performing, he began taking on different personas in public, experiments with regard to his studies and people and how they communicate, with an emphasis on existentialism. Lenny Sorrell, entertainment manager for the Grand Palatial Resort outside Majestic Falls, New York, remembers one summer a curious usher named Sam. I can still see him in his pressed jacket with gold buttons, Sorrell said in an 87 interview which is odd because we didn't employ ushers. But people seem to appreciate him, and he loves setting out the chairs. Crispin is said to have studied fine art at the Wyndham Ridge School near the hamlet of Seward Corner under the assumed name Arthur Lane, a recorded alias of nouveau realism painter and photographer Chico Mansard. Here, in addition to partaking in a number of non-linear happenings with multiple performers, including If a Tree Falls, in which 30 students wrapped themselves in paper products and stood in the forest amongst the trees for three days, drinking cloudy water from bottles labeled Man, Crispin performed his famous Line series, where the young artist took on the role of everyday people standing in lines, army recruiting offices, cafeterias, outside the bathroom at Yankee Stadium. Mounted and entirely silent performances, Crispin, even during this early stage of his life, possessed a sensibility beyond his years. His awareness of the human condition was focused and showed formidable signs of an expressive mastery. After school, while still in New York, he continued his studies posing as an Italian ice vendor in Central Park, in addition to his work as a haggard gigolo from the South named Adrian, and his first female identity, Casey Hotchkiss, a union activist for the New York City Snowplow Federation. Hotchkiss held rallies, formed chapters, and uncovered hundreds of cases of corruption throughout major U.S. labor unions in the city of New York, including bribery, fraud, and an inflated salt tax, before her disappearance in 1970. A decade later, in a rare event, Crispin wrote of his time spent working on the untitled Hotchkiss piece. "'It was merely an exercise,' Crispin wrote. "'A preliminary test to see how deep I could go, "'past the external, superficial reality of appearance, "'giving life to the subject's inherent desires. "'She had friends and a family. "'The co-workers were her family. "'She made an impact on their lives, and these people would miss her.'" Crispin, even in his experiments was redefining art and the audience's emotional involvement. In 1971, Crispin began his most ambitious project to date. He assumed the role of a marketing guru and heroin addict named Gordon Delahue. Crispin, as Delahue, secured a senior position with the Betterman and Ford firm at East 54th Street and Park, after coming highly recommended from the Sheldon Jameson Agency in Chicago, which was concocted by Crispin during his prep work. He scored junk from the park and lived a fast and empty life in a sterile Manhattan high-rise. Crispin, no stranger to the needle since his performance of a burdened dock worker years earlier, managed concentrated doses of the drug before upping his usage. Delahue was a copy wordsmith and a genius with layouts. He made the firm millions but couldn't kick the demons of an abusive childhood. He pushed his life to the limits in a painful pursuit for value and contentment, and in the end, lost out to his addiction. The Delahue piece was the conveyance of an urban tragedy, a product of the times, common, presented as a single case in a sea of stories, and it spoke to the public in a profound way. Word of Crispin's performance spread throughout the art world, and his popularity grew, and with it came wealth, benefactors, and increased notoriety. The allure of Crispin's identity is part of his message," said contemporary video artist Kyle Close in a 2007 documentary. He's mythological. His pieces, although lasting, themselves are momentary, fleeting like all of us, a temporary speck of existence. He is the personification of our condition and the embodiment of our perspective. Biased and based in a culture of our allowing, By the mid 1970s, Crispin had become a cultural icon. Nobody knew when, where, or who his next piece would be. The public started suspecting anyone in their lives with a murky past of being the famed artist new acquaintances, longtime friends, even family. He became the conversation. Are you Crispin? It was the central question of the 1970s. Early on, Crispin secured his finances through a number of secret accounts using a series of aliases. Sellers filled galleries with articles of clothing from his pieces, each bringing in a small fortune. Entire wardrobes stood in modern art museums throughout America. From the overalls of his bridge painter piece Billy Fisher in New York, to the knitted sweater of tennis club pro and swinger Jim Turner in the San Francisco MoMA, commissions began pouring in from and to anywhere, anyone that may have known or have had contact with Crispin. People looking to replace someone they had lost, a figure from a dream, even discreet requests from large companies in trouble and seeking a patsy. It's reported that in 1977 that song and dance man, Christopher Goldman, tried to get Crispin to appear as the popular comedian at a club in LA while Goldman himself was performing in New York. Financer and art collector Peter Burke placed an ad in the trades for Crispin to appear as a member of the catering staff during his annual Preservation Society fundraiser. To this day, many art historians believe that Crispin was Peter Burke. Even then, the ethos of Crispin was taking on a life of its own, providing individual conversations on meta theory and the employment of similar practices within his works. By the start of the 1980s, Crispin had unlimited funds at his disposal. And after years of working on projects with relatively limited extent, Crispin began his first international piece in the hills of La Punta in northern Sonora as a Mexican drug trafficker for the Los Peños organization. He became Arturo Diaz, a dirt farmer turned producer with a radical new network of shipping routes. Crispin surgically altered the pigmentation of his skin, giving it a darker, sun-baked complexion to appear as a man of a rural class, to strengthen his backstory. For two years, Diaz climbed his way up through the ranks and eventually became the number two to Don Juan Carlos Cortez, infamous drug lord and founder of the notorious Los Peños organization. As part of the art piece, to exhibit the volatile nature of the subject, Diaz called a meeting with their southeast rival, the Valencia Cartel, on the pretense of Don Cortez's request. At the meeting, Diaz executed Don Cortez in front of the assembly and assumed control of the operation in a partnership with the Valencia Cartel. A year later, Diaz met his Tijuana bride, with whom he started a family. And in 1986, on the birthday of their youngest, the Mexican army stormed their seaside villa, killing his family, including his brother, Miguel Juan Diaz, who Crispin contacted years earlier during the piece's planning phase, with a convincing story of their separation at birth. In the following months, the army rounded up the other members of Diaz's crew, but by then, Arturo had vanished without a trace. He remains on the FBI's 50 most wanted list. The Arturo Diaz transference remains one of Crispin's most potent and poignant pieces. Heralded as a masterpiece and a daring, unrivaled display of artistic discipline, the project offered a fresh take on the subject of power and greed. In 2002, the Museum of Modern Art in Mexico City placed on display Señor Diaz's leather cigarette case in recognition of Crispin's piece who remains one of the few international artists honored within the Institute's halls. The cigarette case in Mexico, like personal effects used in Crispin's other works, is not to be confused with the actual piece itself, which have no physical properties, says prominent art critic Maxwell Schmidt. It is merely a representation of the transference, nothing more. Although one could argue that the craftsmanship of the case in addition to its artistic symbolism and significance, does in fact hold a market value, but that's not particularly pertinent in this analysis. The late 80s and early 90s were made up of more contained, ephemeral studies from Crispin, who by this time had risen to legendary status. 1989 saw the untitled Terence Rogers III Project, where Crispin transformed himself into the dim-witted heir to the Rogers' margarine fortune, who dressed daily as a time-traveling space explorer with a silver bomber hat and goggles, a piece now lauded for its conversation on entitlement and its relation to mental health. In 1991, Crispin took on the life of an anorexic woman named Mary, In preparation, he survived on lemons and hot water with the occasional honey indulgence. Mary worked at a Baltimore bakery and through the joy of baking and with the support of her new family of coworkers, rediscovered her self-worth and overcame her disorder. In 2011, Mary's apron sold at the Weber and Dobbs Auction House for $234,000. Crispin's 100 Days, 100 Faces series ran in San Francisco from October 22, 1993 to January 29, 1994, and consisted of 100 performances in 100 days, each a different personality telling its own unique story. Although presented as a collection, notable creations included Don Goodspeed, a solo bass player living in the park, moonlighting as a street-side peddler of figures made from hemp. Bobby a gay bartender anxious about coming out to his devout parents during an approaching Christmas visit, and Mr. Rollins, the false name of a beloved city councilman given to a prostitute in the early hours of a scandal. The Faces series, as it came to be known, is a work of art still evolving some 25 years later, as identities from the pieces continue to surface through written accounts and word of mouth, with 37 performances still unknown. Crispin has turned the art world upside down, wrote art historian Caroline Hardin-Smith in her essay, The Beholder of the Eye. He has completely changed the way we view art, taking it out of the galleries and bringing it into the real world. He's made it accessible, digestible, personal, but not without challenge. Criticisms suggesting Crispin was a hoax gained momentum in the late 1980s after the run of his untitled Ashley Robbins piece that found Crispin working in a New York subway token booth for three years. Critics were quick to point out a Crispin timeline that contradicted both his Electric Cowgirl piece in Dallas and the Father O'Malley project in San Marino, California, confirmed by court transcripts, transfer papers, and payments made by the Catholic Church. How could one man be in three places at the same time? Doubters of Crispin's legitimacy, spearheaded by the art scene's old guard, publicly discredited his work, famously calling it a farce with wigs and spirit gum. Crispin's supporters still to this day argue that the three transferences actually work in congruence with a larger message and are most likely part of a series. While some Crispin experts believe the debate itself is the actual piece intended by the mysterious street artist. Over the years, various Crispin imitators have profited from the artist's celebrity, banking on his brand, as well as a number of his more recognizable projects. In 1997, a Santa Cruz artist by the name of Lipson, who was known for reproducing Crispin's identities but as Mutes, replicated the iconic artist celebrated Side Pieces Project, where Crispin, as stockbroker Dennis Hale, managed four separate families without their knowledge, comedically, in a conversation about the absurdity of the modern sitcom. Ripson, a flow sponsored skateboarder and graffiti artist from Atlanta, remained in a 12-year state of arrested development as a play on Crispin's 1999 A Boy's Life residency which saw Crispin, who at the time was believed to be in his late 60s, transform into an eight-year-old boy adopted by an unwitting audience of parents. A boy's life, also known as the Nick Stromberg piece, or Nick Doe, was itself a nod to Brazilian filmmaker Paulo Barbosa in his 1964 film Senhor Gerato, or Mr. Boy. The 2000s saw Crispin perform his acclaimed puppy pedigree transference, where he created a local political dynasty by serving as three generations of city councillors for the small Michigan town of Bay Creek. For 16 years, beginning with the election of Garrett Cox, followed by the vote of his son Gavin Cox several years later, then finally his son Grant Cox, Crispin's succeeding identities ruled the board of Bay Creek with Iron Fists, using the town's funds to develop a state-of-the-art luxury resort on the shores of Lake Michigan, exclusively for the wealthy power elite members of Cox's cherished Cloak and Dagger Secret Society from Bowler University. An elaborate commentary on the divide of the ruling and serving classes, as modern art writer Jacob Miller stated, The piece gained international attention when the magazine Travel and Design featured the private resort in their Top 10 Resorts You'll Never Visit. It is widely suspected by fans that Travel and Design editor-in-chief Isabella Giovanni is another one of Crispin's uncredited transferences, in addition to her fiancé, photographer Martin Gould, who went missing while on assignment in Norway. Today, Crispin is said to be deep in the jungles of Zimbabwe, working on a limited-run, 12-part series focused on the black market jewelry trade. While some scholars suspect he's living as a writer in upstate Vermont, working on a Crispin biography under the pseudonym Wendra Collins, a relatively unknown author that recently received recognition for a bio on sculptor and suspected Crispin transference, Sidney Goddard. Wherever he is, or whoever he is, Crispin's pieces continue to serve as some of the most honest depictions of life and the human experience art has ever seen. The unpredictability of Crispin's work is what makes it so exciting, said Campton University Fine Art Professor Marcia Gray in a 2015 lecture. Like life, in all its randomness, its subtle and chaotic variations, through the depths of its misery and the pinnacle of its rapture, it is uncertain and anything but pedestrian. Even if it appears as tedious as Billy Fisher painting the George Washington Bridge for ten hours a day, every day. Or as page seven as Mary the Baker overcoming self-hatred. Or Ashley Robbins stashed underground trying to make ends meet. And although often out of our control, these are the realities of our existence. We've all got a little Crispin in us, moving through the years, in and out of each other's lives. He once wrote, We're all works of art, with a reality to mind. An unapologetic truth to bear. A sixty, seventy or so year long inner conversation between culture and identity. And like with life and art, Crispin doesn't merely blur the line between existence and reality. He eliminates it. Mm. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday, written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg, with an introduction by Nicole Kelisich, and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scoville. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at tecasualfriday.com or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.